Let's join together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word pervades a service of worship such as this. As we sing it, as we sing about it, as we read it, as we study it, as we understand that we're hearing from you, I pray that you'd help each one of us to profit from it. Help us to pay attention to what it is that you say. And thank you for the blessing of knowing your presence here with us and for the presence of your Holy Spirit who turns the lights of our understanding on, who convicts us of where we need to be convicted, who encourages us, who has a great ministry with each one of us. We thank you for that ministry in action right now. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at the snowballing effects of sin in one encounter that John the Baptist had an unpleasant one, we might think, for him. But we didn't have a bad winter, did we, snow-wise? I would say we didn't have a good winter, snow-wise. There wasn't a whole lot of snow, but this is a good time for us to think about snowballing effects. Let's turn together to Matthew chapter 14. We're back in Matthew. We took some time off to go into Titus, and now we're back in Matthew, and we're going to pick up where we left off in Matthew chapter 14. When we talk about the Gospels, when we think about the Gospels, we often are thinking about this is going to be something about Jesus. And as you look at the heading, I know I look in several of my Bibles, the heading has something to do with John the Baptist. John the Baptist executed or the death of John the Baptist or something along that nature. But it's very interesting to me to see that the Lord Jesus, even though some might say this is about John the Baptist. We're bookended in these 12 verses. The first verse talks about the fame of Jesus, and it provides the incentive for much of what goes on here. The last verse we're going to read talks about the disciples of John the Baptist going and telling Jesus. Jesus is all over the Scriptures. He's all over the Gospels. He's all over the New Testament. And even in a case like this where it seems like it's about Herod and Herodias and John the Baptist, Jesus permeates the Scripture. Let's read it as, uh, follow along as I read out loud. Matthew 14, verses 1 to 12. <laughs> At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Before we do anything else, I would like to pose a question to each one of us. John the Baptist was in his early 30s. 
I think most of us would consider that young. Am I right? Is that young, early 30s? Okay. God could have protected him in jail. Could he not have? God could have protected him. He protected others, even helped others escape jail. Why didn't God save John? Acts 5.19, an angel of the Lord initiated a jailbreak of all the apostles who were in prison. God could have done that again. This is just one man. This isn't all the apostles. Acts chapter 12, verse 10. Peter, sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, sentries guarded the entrance, two more guards strategically placed an iron gate that was locked shut, but an angel of the Lord sprung him from prison. Acts 16, verse 26. Paul and Silas in prison. It's around midnight. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. God could certainly remove anyone from prison any time he wanted to. Supernaturally, he could do it using an earthquake. He could do it using the normal events of the day. He could do it any way he wanted to. Why didn't God save John? John was a great man. Why did he have to die so young? Please understand this. It wasn't because God couldn't save him. He could have saved him and anybody else who comes to your mind that died too young. It wasn't because it wasn't God's power to do it. It wasn't God's purpose to save him. John's work was now done. What was his work? We had it sung to us a little bit earlier. He was a messenger in the wilderness. He was somebody who did some very good, good things. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, as Mark starts out his gospel, he says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That was John's job, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. He understood that full well. He kept saying, I've got to decrease so that he can increase. He did everything it was prophesied of him, everything God wanted him to do. He finished his job. John chapter 10, verse 40. This is talking about Jesus. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, that is, no miracle, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This man's life did not end prematurely in tragedy. It ended at just the right time in reward. Not in tragedy, but in reward. John got a well-done, good, and faithful servant. He did exactly what God wanted him to do. When it was finished, God permitted him the joy of coming home. 
We can and must trust God with the timing of the death of everyone, even those that we think died before they should have. And I say that knowing that there are those among us who have had even young children and grandchildren and others, even even infants and others who were older than that, and some who died prematurely, and we've got to put that in quotes. God could have spared them had he desired to, but it was not God's purpose. There are a couple great verses in Isaiah chapter 57 that sometimes get overlooked. It talks there in terms of the righteous man perishing, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away. Well, no one understands. Why Why are the good leaving? Why do they have to die? And we question the timing of that as well. It says, for the righteous man is taken away from calamity, and other translations will say he's taken away to be spared from evil. The righteous man is taken away to be spared from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness, but it can also, another translation, they rest as they lie in death. It's talking about rest and peace. And the Scripture tells us of reward. Some individuals get to graduate earlier than the rest of us. The rest of us have to stay in school because there are still things we have to learn or things we have to teach. But when it's over, God brings some people to be with him. They're spared the evil of this world. Some of us are going to need to go through that. In the account of the martyrdom of John the Baptist, we see a clear villain or two there, King Herod, the main villain, but His wife Herodias would have to be included there as well, and maybe even her daughter needs to be a part of that. But Herod was having some flashbacks. Understand, this isn't really the account of the death of John the Baptist. This is after that took place. And you can see that in verse 3 where it says, For Herod had seized John and bound him. That took place in the recent past. But that's not the account that we're going through. This is a flashback at this particular point. I don't know about you, but flashbacks can take one of two directions. They can be pleasant. We go back into the past and something comes to mind and it's great. Or sometimes it takes us to the past and it's unwelcome. I would rather not be thinking about that. I'd I'd like to forget that for the rest of my life if I could. So flashbacks can be pleasant memories or they could be horrible curses which it is depends on the state of one's conscience often. What is the state of your conscience right now, even as I bring up the word flashback? Are there skeletons running around in the closet of your mind that need to be dealt with? God's way. Are there some serious regrets that go on, and you're being reminded of it even now as we talk about this? The story before us is a flashback that involves no pleasant memories for Herod Antipas. Herod's conscience is not in good shape. Some things were happening right now that reminded him of a past failure, a recent one. He heard about the fame of Jesus, everything that Jesus was doing. He flashed back to John the Baptist, whom he had beheaded not too long before that particular time. I'd like us to think about what's going on in Herod's mind, try to get inside his mind a little bit and understand what is often called the snowball effect. 
Herod started out like a snowball at the top of a long and steep hill. No doubt things were going wrong in his life long before we view this. But the proverbial snowball once started down the hill gains in momentum and size as gravity draws it farther and farther down and more and more snow builds up. Small snowball can become a large snow boulder or even an avalanche. And we see this happening to Herod, but it happens to everyone who allows sin to go unchecked. So this is the snowball. It begins sinning against the institution of marriage as Herod does, and he does it in a big-time way. Herod was reminded of John the Baptist, whom he had arrested, later beheaded. John pointed out the snowball of sin that started the ball rolling. Herod had sinned against God's institution of marriage. A little bit of background here, if you can see the screen. According to Matthew 14.1, this was Herod the Tetrarch. That's a ruler of a fourth part of a region. We see three of those rulers at that time who are viewed on the screen right now. This one was Herod Antipas. You can see his name. He's in green uh, surrounding him there. He's one of several sons of Herod the Great who had ruled all of Palestine for the Romans. Four sons had been given four areas to rule, and again, three of them are pictured before us. Herod Antipas ruled over Galilee and Perea. Again, seen in the green here on the screen. Sometimes Matthew and Mark refer to him as a king. That was a popular title, though not technically correct. Now I'm going to share with you a little bit about their family tree and some of the things that were going on. Don't worry if you don't understand all of it. Get the general picture, but it can be very confusing as we go through this. There was a TV program used to be on. I never watched one episode of it, but... I knew of it. It was called Peyton Place. Does anybody remember that? When you wanted to refer to a convoluted family situation and intrigues and adultery and all sorts of things, people would say, it's another Peyton Place. Never having seen it, I don't know exactly, but um, this sounds a lot like that. Herod was married to Herodias. That sounds fun, doesn't it? almost the beginning of a fashion statement, like his and hers. It's Herod and Herodias. They might have had it stenciled on their robes or something at the time. But there were several problems in this marriage. First of all, Herodias was Herod Antipas's niece. She was the daughter of Herod's half-brother, Aristobulus. We don't often see that brought out, but that was part of this picture. Secondly, the soap opera started when she married her uncle, Herod Philip, who lived in Rome, while a guest in their home, Herod Antipas, persuaded Herodias to leave her husband, his half-brother, for him. So she divorced Philip, and then Herod divorced his wife, a Nabataean princess. That didn't sit well with the Nabataeans, but that's another story. And so we've got this confused mess of family intermarriage and intrigue and adultery and all the things that are going on. Marriage to one's brother's wife while the brother was still living was forbidden by the Mosaic law. So we know that this was not something that God would approve of. Leviticus 18.16, it says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. It is your brother's nakedness. That's talking there about the sexual relation within marriage. It's a euphemism that uncovering nakedness at that particular time. It was forbidden as long as the brother was still alive. 
Into the family comes Herodias's daughter. She figures prominently in the story as well. Tradition says, according to Josephus, the great Jewish historian, that her name was Salome. The Bible doesn't tell us her name. She later married her granduncle, another Philip, who ruled the northern territories. You see why I said, don't worry if you get confused with all of these interminglings of relationships. Just understand what's going on. There's a lot of sin, and a lot of that sin had to do with marriages that were going on at that particular time. With regard to Herodias's daughter, the apple apparently didn't fall far from the tree. This was not a poor little girl whose mother imposed her will on her. This was somebody who was in complicity with her mother, who had grown at least to feel the same way about John the Baptist that her mother did. Why I say that, she seems to be very involved in this intrigue going on. For one reason, it was highly unusual for a princess or for a young girl of social standing to dance at a party like she did. This was very unusual. In fact, it was so unusual, some of the liberal theologians who doubt the inerrancy of Scripture, they say that this story, it can't be authentic. It would have never happened, they say. It's just one of those make-believe stories in the Bible, according to them. Since only slave girls ordinarily would have been used in this manner to them, and quite possibly this part is true at least, because it was so far from normal, it might have been a premeditated conspiracy on the part of Herodias, understanding her husband, understanding his lusts and his passions to have this girl because she might have been exceedingly beautiful, come there and dance in front of him, knowing what that would do to him and how he might react to that. It's very possible that that took place. All indications are that this was a lewd, suggestive dance. Now, in Mark's parallel account, I'll refer to Mark several times, uh, apparently Herodias's daughter adds two details of her own that even her mother didn't mastermind. Her mother asked her to ask for the head of John the Baptist. Her daughter does that, but she adds the word immediately, and she's the one that adds on a platter platter was a flat wooden dish on which meat was served. So here she is going beyond what her mother told her to do and saying, this has got to be done immediately, and we want his head on a platter. We want it served up that would really be insulting to him. Sin within Herod's family had already mushroomed. The snowball was headed down the hill. It had bred more sin. This was truly a remarkably messed up Family, incest, adultery, divorce, intrigue, revenge. Realize there must have been an intense hatred on the part of Herodias for John the Baptist. We read of it a little bit later on, but there must have been an intense hatred. Realize what had happened? Herod said to her daughter, Herodias's daughter, you can have anything you want, just ask me. She went back to her mother. That means her mother could have had anything she wanted, anything at all. What was number one, the top of the list? She wanted her revenge on John the Baptist. Must have been intense hatred that is going on there for that to have happened. <clears throat> so when we, when we see the things that are going on here, the abuse, 
of God's standard for marriage over and over and over again. People doing what their own desires and passions wanted. They had no sense for commitment or for decency or for morality. So I call this a snowball starting down the hill. But please understand, I don't mean to downplay sinning against marriage. I don't want you to think that I'm saying, well, that's just a little snowball. No, that's a huge snowball. But it gets bigger because there's more hill for them to roll down. It leads to further complications, more sin, and ultimately it's going to lead to destruction. So the snowball gets larger. We see this in verses 6 through 11. Now there's going to be sinning against the messenger of truth. Herod and Herodias lived under the principle, if you don't like the message, shoot the messenger. And now the snowball is going to roll down the hill. It's going to encapsulate. Herod's not going to be able to get out of it. He is past the time when he's going to be able to escape. All John the Baptist did was to tell the truth. And so they're going to shoot the messenger. Look at at Mark chapter 6. I'm going to put these verses on the screen, the parallel passage. Mark chapter 6, verses 18 and 19. It says, For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. Herod wouldn't let her at that particular time. Now let me ask you a question. At this point in the story, she wanted her revenge. She wanted to put him to death. Would God consider her a murderer at this point? Yes. God would consider her a murderer already at this particular point. I asked myself the question, when is it a capital offense to expose dark, foul deeds? Only if somebody is dark and foul. And that's what we have here. Herodias already sinning against John the Baptist in her heart. She sinned by her intent. She wanted to kill him. All she lacked was the opportunity. That makes her already a murderer in God's sight. Is it possible we have murderers among us here right now from God's point of view? I believe that it is entirely possible. There are perhaps some among us who would have killed somebody had they been able to get away with it, who would have, except for the fact that they didn't want to go to jail for the rest of their lives or they didn't want to be killed in turn, There are people in churches around all of the time who would never, ever look the part, but according to what God's Word teaches us, when it's in the heart, it may as well have happened. Somebody pulls a trigger trying to kill somebody. Gun misfires. Is that person guilty of murder? Not in the law's eyes, in God's eyes? Absolutely. You're praying for somebody to be killed? That murder, not legally, but it is in God's eyes. We've got to be very, very careful that snowballs don't happen in us, even if they never come down the hill to execute or murder somebody. It shouldn't be there anyway. Well, Herod is in the middle of sinning. His wife is in the middle of sinning. Herod knew John was a righteous and holy man. We read that in Mark 6.20. He knew that. He feared John, it says there. He was afraid, a continual state of fear. Goodness can be terrifying 
to evil. He was afraid of John. Someone has said the truth will make you free, but first it will make you miserable. Herod feared losing face to his VIPs even more. You remember in verse 7 it says, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, verse 8, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. Mark tells us who his guests were. They were his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. Very important people. He couldn't afford to lose face. Before, he was afraid of the people. They thought John was a prophet. I can't kill this man. Now, having made that foolish oath, his nobles and his military commanders, the leading men of Galilee were there. He couldn't lose face with them. So we've got a a situation where Herod is involved in sin, one that's leading to another. The snowball's going down the hill. Over and over again, this happens. That foolish oath, and he can't back down. Interesting in Mark 6.20, when he heard John the Baptist, he was greatly perplexed, it says, and yet he heard him gladly. This man is conflicted. He goes back and forth, fearing this, fearing that, wanting something else, going against his own wishes, acting foolishly, and then having to cover up for it. Well, think about Herod and his wife. Think about Herod and Herodias. The reactions we get when we correct someone will show us a lot about ourselves. When somebody comes to you and says to you, do you know what? You shouldn't be doing that. How do you react? Somebody who loves you enough to come up to you and say, do you know what? That could be taken the wrong way. Or you could be involving yourself in sin. That, that could be a tempting situation. You don't need to be there. How do you react? Proverbs chapter 9. Listen as I read these verses 7 to 9. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The mocker and wicked person won't take well to criticism. The wise and righteous man will respond. Look at Herod and Herodias. Here was somebody who told them, this is not right. What do they do? They're going to shoot the messenger. They're not going to weigh what he says. They're not going to listen to him. They're going to try to get rid of him. And in fact, they're going to succeed on a human level. People who shoot messengers of truth are very predictable according to the Scriptures. They're the people that are the fools among us. They're the ones who are not wise at all. Back to our snowball Our snowball is continuing, and it's continuing to go down the hill. And when it gets to the bottom, it's not just a big boulder of snow now. It is an avalanche, and things are directly out of hand now. But remember, this is simply the mop-up duty, dirty work of the intrigue. The murder took place earlier in Hearts, and now it took place 
because Herodias got her wish and Herod, against his wishes, was a party to what's going on. Come to the spring thaw. Why do I call it the spring thaw? Well, I ask a question. How do we prevent and get rid of the mountain of snow that sin leaves behind? First of all, we want to prevent it. We don't want it to happen, but when it's there, the same solution. How do we get rid of it? What do we do when we have an uneasy or a bad conscience because of flashbacks that we've had in our lives because of what sin has done to us? Once again, back to Mark's account. And the king, and he referred to him as a king here, and the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He was exceedingly sorry. He was going against what he really wanted to do. That means his conscience was still alive at that point. He was greatly distressed. He was in genuine grief. The word for exceedingly sorry used here is used only one other time in the New Testament. It's used of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. His soul was exceedingly sorrowful at that particular time. So this is affecting Herod. Again, I use the term conflicted. He's a very conflicted individual. In Mark chapter 6, verse 16, he says, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. They're debating back and forth who, who this is, who, who Jesus might be. And he concludes that it's John the Baptist again. John, whom I beheaded. The eyes in the emphatic position. It means it's repeated in his mind at least over and over again. John, whom I beheaded. I killed him. I beheaded him. It's like Lady Macbeth repeatedly washing her hands, crying for the bloody spot to leave. You can see the torment that people have apart from the Lord. And this man, Herod, is tormented in his spirit and his soul. Luke doesn't say much about this, just a little bit. In Luke chapter 9, verses 7 to 9, he says that Herod had been perplexed when he saw the things that were going on with Jesus. He was perplexed and wondering about whether this was John the Baptist. And during that time, it says that he tried to see Jesus. He wanted to go and see for himself what was going on, but that never happened. He didn't see Jesus until Passion Week. Luke 23 records it. The problem is Herod's conscience had died by then. There was nothing left. It was a good idea to go and see Jesus, but he never did. There's a very informative study that's going on in contrasts here when looking at Herod and John the Baptist and even some other individuals. Herod was a bundle of neuroses. Fear is constantly at work in Herod, but it's unemployed, fear is, in the life of John the Baptist. Think with me about a couple of observations as we draw near to the close this morning. Herod is afraid of the dead. Do you realize that when we looked at the first couple of verses at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. He heard all the things that Jesus was doing, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Remember we read earlier, there were no miraculous works, no signs that John was doing. This is a man who's going off the deep end. He's afraid of a dead man now. Do we detect paranoia here? 
A little paranoia on the part of Herod. Certainly it's there. Guilty conscience? Yes. Instability? Yes. Flashbacks of sin? Yes. Herod also feared John. Even though he liked to listen to him, he feared him when he was alive. Mark 6.20, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. Study and contrasts. Fear. Who should have been fearful? To the world, John the Baptist should have been fearful. He was a man who had just told a very important person what he was doing was wrong. Not once. According to the language, he kept it up and kept it up and saying, that's your brother's wife, not yours. He should have been afraid of being imprisoned or even what happened to him being executed. But John the Baptist was not afraid of the living king. John wasn't afraid of him at all. He had been saying to him, continuous action, what you're doing is not lawful. Back to Herod. He's afraid of the people, so he won't kill John, it says in verse 5. He wanted to put him to death. He feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. Herod also feared others, his wife, her daughter, his guests, as we've already seen. An extremely conflicted individual, wanting to please his wife and her daughter, so he did something he was very sorry for. He might not have even done that, but he had gotten in so deeply he couldn't lose face with his friends. One of my favorite writers says something here that I think is very helpful as we try to apply this in our lives. He says, what a tragedy. Herod's conscience had begun to live, and he stifled it because of what he feared others would think. Realizing what was at stake, this seems incredible, but there are many today who are doing just the same thing. How many people's consciences have been awakened to eternal things and their own sinful plight, and yet they have buried it all because of what they feared their friends or family or fiancé or spouse or fellow students would think. There are politicians who for 20 years have not made one decision according to conscience, but rather according to what they think the people want. There are business people who spend their entire day reckoning their decisions with a visualized corporate ladder before them, not what is right. There are students who sell their souls to escape ridicule. More people than we realize have lost eternity because they feared what others think. Fear grows, as does all sin. How do we stop the snowballing effect of sin in general and fear in particular? How do we stop that? Proverbs 29, 25 gets us started. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. John the Baptist is one who trusted the Lord. It cost him his life because he angered some people, the wrong people, one might say, but he wasn't afraid of them. He knew the big picture, and he trusted in the Lord, and he was taken to safety for all of eternity. Notice in the last verse here, in verse 12, notice that John's disciples were not afraid to come and take his body and bury it and then go and tell Jesus. A lot of people would have been under those circumstances afraid. They trusted the Lord as well. 
want to make this comment, and that is, and this is very, very important, and I hope you understand what I'm saying. What do we do to avoid the snowball effect of sin or the snowball effect of a particular sin of, of worry or anxieties we've seen here? Deal with sin when it is still a snowflake. Do you know what I'm saying? Deal with sin when it is still a snowflake. Don't ever even let it get to be a snowball. Turn with me real quickly, if you will, please, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 13. We see temptation to sin being in stages, in steps. And by the time, let's pick up at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What is it saying? Sin comes in stages. I've often likened this to a fish. Fish go to school, right? They're fish... In school, they're taught. You see this round thing, colorful, bobbing up and down in the water. Don't go near it. Because once that attracts your attention, pretty soon you're going to be lured further and further and you're going to bite down on this hook and you're going to be ensnared and it will end up in your destruction. Well, metaphorically, maybe that doesn't happen with fish, but it happens with people because God says, avoid the temptation from the very, very beginning. Deal with sin when it is still a snowflake. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 to 15, make it as clear as it can possibly be made. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Don't even allow your curiosity to get you up close to something that shouldn't be. Stay as far away from it as you possibly can. There are those who understand the Bible teaches against being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And they will say, I will never marry an unbeliever. But you will date one. And you will date one again and again until that snowball gets down the hill so far that you're not going to be able to stop it. And you're going to end up like you never would have if you hadn't dealt with sin when it was still a snowflake. Deal with it early on. That's the point that that we can take from here in a practical way. We can take from a practical way this whole idea that when we're having flashbacks, flashback, let it be of forgiveness. Because we've dealt with it, we've repented of it, we've forsaken it, we've confessed it to the Lord. He doesn't know what we're talking about if we bring it up again. He says, I've chosen to not remember that anymore. We don't have to be like Herod. Can you imagine having his mind, his mind going back and forth and back and forth and being afraid of these people, but more afraid of these. So I'm going to have to do something I don't want to do because I don't know who I want to offend least. What a terrible way to live. We don't have to live that way. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus at the bookends of this story of his great fame and what he did and the disciples of John wanting to report back to Jesus because he was the authority. And thank you for the practical lessons that we see here 
And I pray that you would help each one of us. If we don't remember anything else, maybe we can picture that snowball rolling down the hill that gets worse and worse and remember to deal with sin when it's still a snowflake before it gets to that point. Help us to do what it tells us to do in your word, to avoid it and to turn away from it, to not even put a foot, not even put a toe in that path. And help that to be deeply impressed on us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.